You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. The HPV vaccine has been proven to offer protection from strains of the human papillomavirus and has been met with great fanfare since its creation. For the first time, defense against a form of cancer, cervical cancer in this case, is possible in the form of a vaccine. The human papillomavirus is back in the news again, and this time it is the link between the virus and throat cancer that has people talking. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta is my guest, Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine and one of the clinical investigators for the HPV vaccine. Welcome, Dr. Alt. Thank you. Dr. Alt, first, could you comment on the increasing numbers of throat cancer occurring each year and the link with HPV? Well, there's been some interesting data along that line. Basically, 20 years ago when I finished medical school, we were taught that most of the head and neck cancers were smoking-related and alcohol-related. And so as the smoking rates have gone down in the United States, a lot of those cancers have gone down. But more recently, maybe in the past five or 10 years, one of the HPV types has been related to some of these head and neck cancers, especially in younger people. Is HPV responsible for all of these new cases or just a portion? Just a portion. In cervical cancer, you might know the portion is almost 100%. If you take all head and neck cancers, you get about 25%. If you look at certain sites like the tongue, it's about 50-50. So it's a little different than cervical cancer in that regard. Can you give us some demographic information about the new population of people diagnosed with HPV-related throat cancer? Well, it kind of depends on how you define young, but again, turning back the clock, we typically thought of this cancer in people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s in smokers and drinkers. And so the new demographic or the people that lack those traditional risk factors may be in their 30s or 40s. I've seen some people in their 20s with tongue cancers and can be non-smokers and non-drinkers as well. So that's the, and that's the group of people that these cancers are going up in. So... Is the HPV virus more fast-acting than alcohol or tobacco as a risk factor? Because this is a young group. Well, I think some of this needs to be sorted out. In cervical cancer, we got about three or four decades head start on the head and neck cancer stories. So I'm not sure if faster is the right word. The issue with the cervix is almost everybody gets exposed to human papillomavirus and very few of us develop problems with it. And unfortunately, we just don't have the natural history data for the head and neck cancers to know if everybody gets a transient infection with HPV-16, the type that's most associated with this cancer, and then very few of us develop problems with it. But the typical story for human papillomavirus-induced cancers is that there might be you know, a decade or two or three from time of exposure to the time that you are diagnosed with the cancer. How does the virus cause the body to become cancerous? It's a very simple little virus. It's only got about 8,000 base pairs, and that gives it about a dozen or so genes. Two of the genes are the troublemakers. So there's one in particular, which is one of the early genes called E6 that latches on to P53. And some of your listeners with a molecular biology background probably know that that's the on and off switch for the cell. And so basically it disables that switch. And so the cell is always in the on position. 
if the E6 is infecting and the human papillomavirus is unfortunate enough to infect that individual cell. So, and there's another gene, E7, that has some similar functions. So in this relatively simple virus, there are these two oncogenes that are pretty potent in vivo and in vitro. The HPV vaccine has been proven to protect against two of the virus that cause about 70% of all cervical cancers. Do we know which human papillomavirus is responsible for throat cancer? We do. For pretty much everything else except the cervix, the story is HPV-16, and it's one of the more common HPV types. These types are numbered. It's responsible for vaginal cancer, vulvar cancer, anal cancer, as well as the head and neck cancer. So it's the worst of the worst is what I usually tell people. And we know that, in fact, the vaccine covers that. The vaccine does cover that, but the easiest studies to do are for the most common conditions like cervical cancer because we have a clearly defined precancerous state. And I'm not sure we really have that for our colleagues interested in head and neck cancer. When we last spoke about the HPV vaccine and its effectiveness in reducing cervical cancer, the notion of vaccinating males was not being met with much enthusiasm. Have things changed on that front because of the link to throat cancer? You certainly hear that more from patients, and you see that in the popular media. So I think the short answer is yes. So because these cancers affect both genders, the head and neck cancers, and, you know, our fairly common if you add together all the sites, you know, tens of thousands of cases of these types of cancers, you could come up with a clear benefit for men and for women if we can prove that the vaccine prevents these cancers. And since girls and young women are being vaccinated against HPV at greater and greater rates, could we predict a decrease in the incidence of HPV-related throat cancer several years from now in women? And probably not that kind of protection for males unless that change occurs? There may be some benefit to the herd if we vaccinate the women. If vaccinating young women means there's less HPV-16 to pass around, then the overall rates of HPV-16 in the population may go down. That's very dependent on the proportion of young women that get vaccinated as well as the efficacy of the vaccine. You know, you can see that in some other vaccines where you vaccinate, let's say, young children with pneumococcal vaccine, and the rest of us might benefit because there's just less pneumococcal disease running around our community. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Alt, let's talk about the practical implications for clinicians from this new research linking HPV and throat cancer. What should clinicians be advising their patients with regard to the vaccines and sexual behaviors? Well, we're just beginning to get some data about sexual behavior and head and neck cancers. The best study was the study that was in the New England Journal of Medicine last year, and it linked the number of sexual partners to your risk of developing some of these head and neck cancers that were due to HPV. And so I think, you know, it would be part of your overall advice when you're talking to young people, especially in the vaccine age group for the HPV vaccine, to abstain from intercourse, to delay the onset of intercourse, and to limit the number of partners that they have. Some of the data in that New England Journal of Medicine was broken down to different sexual activities, you know, penile vaginal intercourse or 
oral intercourse, and they both appear to entail some risk. So you have to get into some details, I think, about sexuality to convey the message to this group of people. And because you need to have a detailed sexual history or at least have that conversation, do you think that it's going to be mostly the role of the obstetric gynecologist to talk to their patients about this rather than other practitioners? Well, you certainly think of our profession or our specialty as dealing with those subjects. So I suppose we're as comfortable as anybody in that arena of women's health. So yes, certainly we should talk about that. Again, you know, our colleagues in pediatrics might give a little broader message as far as a number of cancers that might be linked to this HPV type that hopefully the vaccine will prevent. So you might make a little broader case that we're preventing, you know, a variety of cancers if we can come up with the evidence that that's the case. Right. And if you're going to reach those males, I suppose it would be pediatricians who would be best Right. There's this adolescent health care visit that's right in the middle of the age when the vaccine is recommended, and hopefully they're getting lots of vaccinations and lots of anticipatory guidance at that visit. Knowing that many different clinicians are going to be in a position to help detect these cancers, how are the throat cancers detected, and which health care providers do you see as most likely finding them? There's a lot of literature in the dental area as well as the head and neck area about these cancers. I'm not sure we have the pap smear equivalent right now for the head and neck cancers. There's not a clearly defined precancerous stage like there is for cervical cancer, and we don't really have the equivalent scraping or screening or however you'd like to use the terminology of tests to look at that. So that's one of the real weaknesses really in proving whether this is going to work or not, because that's what the HPV vaccine is based on is precancerous changes. What is the overall risk in the first place for throat cancer in the general population? Is this common? It's pretty common. It kind of depends on how you define throat cancer, you know, because there are the tonsils, the tongue, the pharynx, laryngeal cancer. So each of those cancers in itself is not rare, but not common, you know, tens of thousands of cases. But if you add all those up, you have a pretty good sized number. You know, you have several hundred thousand cases in the United States every year. What is the prognosis for those who are diagnosed with throat cancer? Well, like all cancers, you're getting a little away from the specialty of gynecology, but like all cancers, you know, the prognosis would be good if you can catch them at the earliest stages where things are localized and you can use radiation and surgery and some of the typical things we do. These cancers of the cervix as well as the head and neck fall into squamous cancers or skin cancers. So typically radiation and chemotherapy and surgery are our best weapons against those. And we're, you know, modestly successful when we catch them in their earliest stages. It's easy to see how important this new research is in helping people to stay healthy. How big of an impact has this made in the scientific world and the research world? Well, I heard a very interesting talk a week or two ago where I was in the audience and some of our colleagues at the National Cancer Institute were talking about HPV. And basically, in the entire population of the world, about one out of every six cancers is linked back to an infectious cause. And hepatitis B is one of the things we have a vaccine against, which, of course, is linked to liver cancer. And now we have this vaccine that would prevent the viral cause of cervical cancer. 
And I think you could probably make the argument that the biggest contributor to that number is the human papillomavirus. Cervical cancer is the second leading cause of death for women worldwide. It's less common in the developed world where women have access to screening, but we tend to catch things in their precancer stage in those systems. So I think HPV, as far as the microbes that are associated with cancer, may be the one that it's good that we're concentrating on today. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine. Thank you for the interesting discussion, Dr. Alt. Thank you. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Marilyn Moffitt, Professor of Physical Therapy and co-author of Age-Defying Fitness in New York. You are listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.